0: Okay, well, it looks like it's about that time, so let's go ahead and get started. Uh, just to make sure everyone's in the right place, this is uh, the Noetic Effects of Sin and the Task of Biblical Counseling. So if you didn't want to be here for that, uh, why there's time to get out. But uh, hopefully you're all here uh, for this this uh, this topic, and hopefully we can... Uh, be, uh, there can be some profit gained here uh, this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us, your manifold grace to us. We thank you for uh, the special grace whereby we have been called and regenerated, our hearts changed, uh, so as to be able to uh, follow the ethical precepts of your word. uh, And also, we thank you for the common graces uh, that accrue to us as well. Uh, that curb the effects of sin even among those who are unregenerate. Lord, I ask we, uh, that as we study these topics uh, this morning that we would not only uh, marvel at the graces that you have given to us, uh, but also to seat them properly within a system of theology and of counseling uh, so that we can be better prepared uh, to help people change. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, this uh, is Fairly well manuscripted here, I'll, I'll, I'll come up for air here and there, but uh, you can see that it's, it's filled out more than some of the outlines here. But I start with a definition of biblical counseling. It's my definition here. Come on in. Biblical counseling, I say here, is an attempt uh, by one Christian to convince another Christian to implement the ethical implications of the biblical worldview. It's my own definition. I admit this, so undoubtedly you can fix it after the session here, Uh, but it seems to reflect, I think, pretty well what I've observed from the Guild of Biblical Counselors. I'm not a part of that, I'm not a a professional or certified biblical counselor, though, as uh, one person once said, we're all competent to counsel, right? Uh, So here I am. Uh, So again, biblical counseling is the attempt by one Christian to convince another Christian To implement the ethical implications of the biblical worldview. Now, this is a fairly narrow definition, and it seems uh, to categorically preclude the possibility of proper biblical counseling of unbelievers, since it's one believer helping another believer to implement the ethical implications of the Christian worldview. And in a formal sense, that's true. Total depravity always prevents the success of the comprehensive goals of biblical counseling. Those can only occur in the regenerate. So only members of the community of faith can profit holistically from the counseling exchange. Still, uh, one wonders whether any of the goals of biblical counseling can be realized in unbelievers, and that's one of the questions that will be explored in this session. Is counseling unbelievers Uh, Is this an example of a a round peg going into a square hole, or is there something that we can do in biblical counseling to help those who are unbelievers? It's also evident uh, that the remnants of sin in believers also hinders the effectiveness of biblical counseling among believers. But the anthropology of the biblical counseling community on this matter has not been uniform. The anthropology of the converted man, as Thomas Boston called it, is all over the map. And that's going to affect, to some degree, how counseling moves forward. So divergent views on the lingering effects of depravity have weighed on this matter, uh, disparately, on the nature of the counsel that's been given by biblical counselors. Okay? It's so the goal of this presentation to develop the idea of noetic depravity. That word, noetic, for those of you who perhaps are wondering what that is, from the Greek word nous. Incidentally, the same word from which we get the word noetic, right? So, the mind. So, uh, so it's the effects of depravity on the mind in both the regenerate and the unregenerate, and then offer some practical implications for the counseling task. The specific research question that I'm addressing here is this, to what degree do the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin on the mind, inhibit successful biblical counseling? And a couple of sub-questions here. First, how debilitating is depravity on the unregenerate, His his capacity to change in his own behavior? And is it ethical? for a biblical counselor to encourage an unregenerate man towards moral improvement apart from faith. I've heard that on many occasions, that it's not appropriate to counsel an unregenerate person towards moral ends, lest we engage in therapeutic moral deism. So a little bit more on that as we come along. Is is that the case? Can we ever tell a bad person who is unregenerate to be good? My tentative initial answer is, yeah, you can do that. Secondly, what are the continuing effects of depravity on the regenerate? And consequently, what are the roles, respectively, of the individual himself, the Spirit and our Lord Christ, in achieving victory over sin habits addressed in biblical counseling? How is it that we progress in sanctification based on who we are in Jesus Christ? And how does that work? So it's the purpose of this presentation to offer some informed answers to these and, and other related questions. I want to start here with a statement by B.B. Warfield. I'm trying to seat, like I say, seat counseling here within the broader question of systematic theology. That's my area. I'm not a practical theologian uh, in, in, in general. I, I teach systematic theology. Nonetheless, there's practical implications. Hopefully I'm uh, capable at least of, of seeing some of them. B.B. Warfield once noted that the discipline of systematic theology might plausibly be called philosophical theology without any loss of meaning. By saying this, he maintained that, the Christ, that Christian theology being a comprehensive ideological system according to which all truth may be established and measured is by its very definition a philosophy. Complete with a distinctive ontology, God is and all other being is derivative and analogical of him. There's a distinctive epistemolo- epistemology. God has spoken, firstly in creation, but most, more specifically in the sufficient scriptures, and then also axiology or ethics. God has provided an ethical code, comprehensive ethical code, of conduct in human conscious, conscience, and then specifically through these same scriptures. So All of the elements of a philosophy are resident within systematic theology. That's what he means when he says, if you're going to talk about systematic theology, you're actually talking about systematic philosophy as well. Sometimes that that grates on, on the ear. But I think he makes a very important point. Because like all philosophical systems, the validity of the Christian system can be measured by its ability to supply transcendentals for all that is. It can successfully explain the world we're in. And secondly, by its coherence or perfectly conformity to itself, to its own stated principles. So there's coherence here. Indeed, we may rightly argue that the Christian system alone, among all of its competitors, successfully passes these tests. That's in a nutshell what's sometimes called the transcendental argument for God. It's not properly an argument that supplies uh, uh, incontrovertible evidence for the existence of God. No presuppositionalist will allow that. But rather, it's an observation that no theory besides the Christian one accounts for the world in which we live in any sort of consistent way. And what this means for our discussion is that the ethical component of Christianity, the third and most derivative element of any uh, philosophical system, is properly sensible only to those who have accepted the first two. You have to accept the fact that God is, and that God is, has spoken, before we implement what he tells us to do, our ethic. So if God is not, and if he has not spoken, then there's really no reason to do what the Bible says. So as Christians, we ought always act in conformity with this standing presupposition, God is, God has spoken authoritatively and inerrantly in the Protestant scriptures, and therefore we should do what it tells us to do. And that's the essence of biblical counseling. Do what the Bible says, somewhat bluntly there. Those who do not first submit to Christian ontology and Christian epistemology have no logically binding reason to embrace the Christian ethic, and in fact are prejudiced against it. Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? Uh, Familiar with the passage. God is revealed from heaven. He has made it plain to them who he is, what he expects. He has made it plain. They are clearly seen. They are understood by what has been made. They knew God. They had God. They had God in their grasp and yet they suppress him they exchange him multiple times that that term is used and not only exchange it for the lie but knowing that it's a lie right verse 32 that's sort of after after a long list of ethical errors there's this conclusion here that although they know God's righteous decree that those who do these kinds of things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Chapter 2 goes on to say why. Because they have the law of God written upon their very hearts. Even if they don't even have the Bible, they have this law of God written upon their hearts. So they had in their grasp an ontology, an epistemology, that if followed would lead to an appropriate axiology or ethic. But they don't do that uh, because of... Depravity. Okay? And that's, that's the problem. So they suppress the truth, exchange it for a lie, and we'd recognize then that the chief problem of the unregenerate man is not ethical per se, it's pistical. It's, it's a faith issue. He does not submit in faith to the God who is and who has spoken. And so any ethical exhortation by a counselor without first addressing the pistical problem. The problem that they don't believe in God and what he has said, will produce at best a tepid response and might even have the unwanted effect of occluding the gospel. Uh, there, there can be a, a suggestion here that moral therapy is, 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 a, is an acceptable alternative to gospel, and we certainly don't want to teach that. Okay. So what then are the effects of depravity on the unregenerate? Well, from the foregoing, it's clear that the effects of human depravity on the unregenerate are not such that they're unaware of God or oblivious to his expectations. They know God. They know what he's like. They know what he expects. So the situation is much worse than this, right? The unregenerate are self-consciously hostile towards what they plainly and clearly know about God and his demands. In fact, we could go further the spirit can actually compound this wickedness further by convicting them that is convincing them more acutely making them more acutely aware even uncomfortable about their sin their lack of righteousness and their ter- and the terrible reality of impending divine judgment right the work of conviction there in john 16:8 which goes out to the world the spirit convinces the world of these things and so like the demons they know And they tremble, but they don't convert. Students of theology are sometimes surprised to learn that the Reformed doctrine of total depravity, or as Paul calls it, spiritual death, cannot be described in terms of mere ignorance or or inactivity. That's an overstatement. So there's sometimes this idea out there, we we talk to somebody who's an unregenerate person and we're talking to a brick wall. They're completely inert. Uh, they're, They're incapable here of... Of even understanding the words we use, you know, you hear sometimes people. I, you know, I was an unbeliever. I couldn't read the Bible. I couldn't understand what it said. Can't reason effectively. Can't perceive the weight of biblical moral ought. But the fact is, unbelievers can do all of those things. Okay. So total depravity does not preclude the unbeliever from grasping the reality that God is, and even the fact that this is his word, and it ought to be obeyed. So they're aware of these things. That's very helpful in apologetics, also in counseling, right? Because you've got, you've got, their, you've got their, their conscience on your side, right? Right? You can talk to them, and, and you're just reminding them of what they already know. I think there's, I think there's really a close relationship between apologetics and counseling. I, some of that, I'll, I think, we'll, we'll tease out here as we work through here. So the fact is, uh, they are not inert brick walls where biblical apologetics and counseling are concerned. Uh, the unregenerate plainly possess all of these capacities. So we don't want to overstate the effects of depravity in the unregenerate. They are capable of using their minds, their tongues, their wills, and and so so those capacities are not gone. And so what sometimes happens then, there's a pendulum swing towards an understatement of total depravity. So it impels then the incautious student of theology to couch the doctrine of depravity in terms that are less comprehensive, The unregenerate mind and will, we sometimes hear, are damaged but not destroyed by depravity. But this is semi-Pelagianism, okay? It's also incorrect and really dangerous too, leading to all manner of error, both in apologetics and counseling. They're just sort of damaged, they're only injured. And so we can can just sort of help them, you know, dig down deep, pull up their own bootstraps and, and make things right. Rather than seeing the idea of depravity as monolithic in its effects, rendering the believer uniformly damaged but not destroyed, I think it's better to argue that the effects of depravity are wholly destructive of certain human functions, that is, faith in God, that's where inability comes in apart from regenerating grace, but only incidentally destructive of others. And I'm going to explain that as we work our way through. So the linguistic, rational, volitional, affective, countless other spheres are still within the purview of the unbeliever, even the ethical sphere at times. And these can be positively affected by mere common grace at times, and following is an attempt to delineate and defend this. Down there I have a, a, a lengthier uh, footnote here. James Spire uh, wrote, writes a book, it's an introduction to philosophy, actually. And he, uh, and he details here 14 different spheres. He follows loosely Hermann Dierverd's, uh sphere sovereignty, uh, model of philosophy here, and uh, he lists fourteen different spheres in which we live, and talks about the effect of common grace in each of these spheres. Right, some in some areas of life, we can we can work side by side with an unbeliever, and we really don't even have to explain ourselves. Uh, at the bottom there, the arithmetical sphere: two plus two equals four. Common grace. Makes it possible for all of us to recognize that without much debate. Okay, I know there is some debate, but really, in general, there's not much debate over over that fact. And as you work your way up, though, you find that more and more special grace is needed for you to work alongside someone else until you get up to the very top, which is the pistical sphere, the sphere of faith, in which common grace is of no effect. Okay, so we recognize that common grace can affect unbelievers in such a way that they are able to, to track with you in certain areas, okay? And so I, I say here then that, re, that even apart from regenerating grace, these functions are still operative and we can still, that's why we can have a conversation with an unbeliever because we use common language, we, we, use, we have a common linguistic function and sense, Okay? So we're going to look then at two categories here, and I'm going to use this outline that I've, I've really borrowed from a seminary apologetics course that Greg Bonson taught uh, several years ago, many years ago now, in Manhattan. It was, a, it, was a, it's a, it was recorded, but he's right next to a subway, and every... every Every hour or so, he would have to stop for like 15 seconds while the train would go past because he couldn't hear a thing. But, uh, but I, I picked up uh, some, of these, some of this outline from him here. Uh, so the effects of depravity, first on faith, and then secondly, the effects of depravity on what he says, reason here. But I'm just going to expand that to include all of the functions of uh, the image of God. So the effects of depravity first on faith in the unregenerate. So in discussing the Reformed doctrine of total inability, this is usually what comes to mind. Unbelievers are incapable here of believing God. And so that's where we see this this preponderance of the biblical use of verbs of ability. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Talk about a politically incorrect question there. So can an Ethiopian change his skin or can a leopard change his spots? Well, no. Because his nature as a leopard precludes the possibility of having stripes. Okay? And so that's the answer. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It's not in your nature. Jeremiah 6.10. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed, so they cannot hear. Note, note, note the end. In- the, 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 the paradox here. They have eyes, they have ears, they can't see, they can't hear. Okay? And that's that's the paradox we're teasing out right now. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. The world cannot receive the spirit of truth. The mindset on the flesh is death. It does not subject itself to the law of God and cannot do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. They're spiritually appraised. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. No one can say, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So all these terms of ability here, can and can't, uh, establish, I think, beyond any reasonable doubt, Uh, The the fact of human inability, at least in the unregenerate. What is unclear in these passages, however, is the precise nature of this inability. I think sometimes it can be overstated, sometimes understated. Some students situate inability in the sphere of function and deny to the regenerate all capacity to make choices at all. You sometimes will hear someone say that man does not have a, a free will. Well, the fact is, freedom is one of the functions of the image of God, and we have freedom. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to tease out uh, Jonathan Edwards' view of freedom. If you're familiar with it, there is a natural freedom. His chooser isn't broken; he still makes choices in in accordance with the with the dominant impulse of his nature. So he makes choices freely, okay? But he has moral inability. That is it's not his chooser that it's broken it's his nature his heart that's broken and so the and so the what sin signals to the chooser is always sin 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 okay so that's why we can talk about an unbeliever as having freedom and yet at the same time having moral inability okay the only problem that the only solution to this problem then is the impartation supernaturally of a new nature which is regeneration So, what then are the effects of depravity on the image of God? Well, we've already started on that. So, man's capacity for freedom remains intact after the fall. And this is a microcosm, then, of the effects of depravity on the whole image of God in man. All of the functions of personhood that make humans analogs of God. That is, a capacity for reason, freedom, purpose, affection, spirituality, self-consciousness, linguistics, uh, morality, we could probably add to this list. These are retained by the unregenerate man, at least in some sense, or he would cease to be human. These are definitional of humanity, of, of personhood. We are in the image of God. We are the image of God, in fact. And it seems to be resident within these functions of personhood. So the language of total inability is, for this reason, inappropriate here. When we're talking about the realm of faith, inability is the right word. When we're talking about these capacities, these functions of personhood, that we retain because we are persons in the image of God... We aren't talking about inability in an absolute sense. Because people are still able to talk. They're still able to think. They're still able to reason. They're still able to make choices. They're still able able to love and hate. Okay. So these, these capacities remain intact. So to rehearse this theme again, that's repeated in scripture, they have eyes but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear because they are a rebellious people. Okay, So they have the capacities, but they don't use them appropriately because of depravity. It's notable that no biblical reference to the image of God hints of any diminution of the concept of the image of God among the unregenerate. On the contrary, the continuing image stands as a foundational principle of social structuring in the civil sphere, Right? what happens after the the flood okay there's 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 a, there's an establishment of human government and there's responsibilities are given to humanity uniquely because they're in the image of god okay that's why they can be governors that's why they can be heads of this civil aspect of god's government and paul tells us 1 corinthians chapter 11 that that's the, the same thing is true in the most basic unit of civil society, which is not government, but the family, right? And, and why is it? Why is it that men have authority over women in family structure? Because of the image of God. Okay? And it, and it's, so so we, we find here that this image of God be, remains an extremely important concept within the civil sphere. It's the basis for family structure. It's the basis for civil government. Okay. In fact, the only other I have the other only other passage where the image of God is clearly uh, stated here, James three nine, uh, where uh, where we are exhorted not to curse one another who are in the image of God. Bless God and then curse those who are in, who are in His image. So the so we we the number of times that the uh, image of God is actually clearly reflected in the Scripture are actually quite few, but they're extremely important for us. Okay. So. This image of God, then. What is its nature? What's its status? Well, there's, there's considerable debate about that. The understanding that commends itself for its ability to harmonize depravity with the salient text we've looked at is that suggested by Jonathan Edwards, which we just looked at here, and explained further by John Murray, who has an outstanding article on this topic. There's actually two books that have come out recently that have reflected this view of the image of God, and I think very well, John Kilner's Dignity and Destiny, and Owen Strahan, whose book just came out here last year, *Reenchanting Humanity, A Theology of Mankind. I really recommend all of those uh, to you. I think they, they really have a handle on this image of God topic. Specifically, these teach that the image of God is to be restricted to the capacities of personhood, but not to the perfections of their expression. That is to say, that mankind, even in his unregenerate state, can still speak and think and choose and emote and make moral judgments, and by his own unaided power at times, can even routinely overcome debilitating sin habits and establish good ones. happens all the time, right? People go to Alcoholics Anonymous and say, "I've been, you know, I've been off for 23 years." So, so, so it is possible even to implement some of these these moral ideas with, without divine assistance, at least in terms of special grace. I think there is always divine assistance here whenever grace is involved, even common grace. Uh, but they are not even believers. But what he can't do can't do is incline his heart toward God so as to do these things righteously. Or stated more precisely in Isaiah 64, all their righteousnesses, all of their incidental conformities to God's expectations, which they sometimes exhibit, all of those are as filthy rags. They're non-meritorious. They're they're, they're of no, no value to him in the big picture. So the functions of personhood are affected by depravity which colors every aspect of human existence, so that man's linguistic function is such that he cannot help but speak evil. But that's not because there's something wrong with his tongue, per se, his linguistic instrument here, any more than his chooser was broken above. Rather, he speaks and chooses evil because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart bringing out of his evil treasure that which is evil. This is what I mean by saying that his linguistic function is damaged incidentally or indirectly by depravity, so his tongue is not broken, his chooser is not broken, rather that which informs it is broken, absolutely broken, his nature, his heart. Okay, I think all of this becomes quite important for us, this distinction, because... I think it explains a lot of areas of theology, but but most specifically here for our topic here, counseling. In anthropology, it offers a credible explanation how mankind may be treated in the Bible as simultaneously as both having freedom, the ability to choose according to his most dominant impulse, and also inability, the incapacity to choose that which is truly good. I mean, the fact is, no person, whether that be a human, an angel, or even God, has absolute freedom, that is the ability to choose contrary to his nature, God cannot lie, right? says there, right in Titus. Why not? I thought he was omnipotent. Well, yes, he can do anything in keeping with his own nature, character, and decree. He just can't do anything willy-nilly. Okay? Same thing is true with us as humans. An unregenerate person is incapable of doing that which is good because the dominant impulse of his nature is such that he always does evil continuously. It supplies, secondly, a credible theodicy of God's just condemnation of persons who are incapable of exercising faith. Sometimes That's a, that's a hard question, right? How is it that God is going to judge people who are incapable of believing him in the first place? It doesn't seem quite fair. But the fact here is that the ethical basis of judgment for sin is not man's failure to do what he cannot do per se, but his willing participation in what he knows that he should not do and his, we could add to this, his refusal to do that which he knows he ought to do. So no one's going to get up to heaven and say, it's not fair, God, I I couldn't believe because the response is going to be, yes, but you chose willingly and delighted in that which I hated, and you did it knowingly and willingly, that's why you're going to be condemned. Not because you were incapable of the opposite, per se, but because you gladly and willingly did did that which I told you not to do, and you know it. That's the basis for judgment. In hermeneutics, this model explains how the unregenerate can read uh, and understand the plain message of Scripture using a normal grammatical hermeneutic, know God's precise expectation, and then remain hostile. Okay, it's because he, he can still read; he can still understand what the message that is there. I mean, it helps us in apologetics, right? Too how we are able. Then next point here to to reason with and persuade those are the verbs that are used of Paul and of Apollos as they were as they were operating in the marketplace they were able to reason with and persuade unbelievers with their apologetic how were they doing that i thought i thought they i thought these people had inability they were brick walls well no they had a capacity to gather information process information think about it make deductions about it and even conclude, you know? He's right. But, of course, that last step of welcoming it and embracing it and submitting to it is something that the sphere of faith, that's not something that Paul or Apollos could accomplish. Only God could do that. Okay? So it explains then how apologetics works, how hermeneutics works, and then it also explains how counseling works, right? This model explains how that a biblical counselor can sometimes persuade unbelievers And even help them to conquer addictions, curtail sinful excesses, cultivate good habits, following, incidentally, within pure motives, the law of God written upon their hearts, all the while denying the substance of the biblical worldview. So they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof, because they borrow from the Christian worldview. So what are the implications, then, of the effects of depravity on the unregenerate? Okay, well, we've seen above that a biblical counselor can successfully persuade an unregenerate person to reform his behavior. Okay, but the question is, is that a good idea? One runs the risk, to use a popular phrase, of perpetrating therapeutic moral deism as a substitute for the gospel. Okay, you can perhaps suggest to to the unregenerate person that all you need to do is clean up your life, and God will be happy with you, and you know, completely shortcut around the, uh, the gospel message and, and ignore it. Well, we can't do that. But is it possible, even if someone who is an, is an unbeliever and does not submit to the truth of Scripture, that you can at least compel them or co- persuade them uh, to, to clean up their life? Is that, a, is that an appropriate thing to do? Well, I'm very deeply concerned about replacing the gospel with therapeutic moral deism, I don't know that it necessarily follows that any encouragement of an unbeliever to do the right thing is necessarily, for that reason, wrong. Okay? I think that perhaps may be an over, overreaction here. So, number one, if the biblical counselor remains resolute in his stance that moral therapy is not the greatest need of the unbeliever, and that all of his reforms, while real and good, are as filthy rags before God, the biblical counselor, I think, may in good conscience recommend good behavior to the unregenerate, acting as an agent of God's common or civic grace. And in so doing, the counselor can play a legitimate role in establishing a society where all may live in peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We don't want to press our concern about... Therapeutic moral deism to the point that we promote a society that's filled with violent people, violent husbands, and, and recalcitrant children. We actually want to tell them, be good. okay? Even if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, be good. okay? That's an appropriate thing. As dual citizens in God's manifold government, we have a responsibility not only to prepare men for the kingdom to come, but also to live morally, soberly, righteously, neighborly, with integrity, civility, industry in the present age. This is not a betrayal of evangelistic principles, but a recognition that God's government features legitimate ends additional to the success of the gospel and the establishment of the church. We could go on on that one, but I'll, I'll leave it. Number two, the believer's, actually it should be unbelievers, the unbeliever's ethical inconsistencies with his own worldview, furthermore, can be a tremendous segue into apologetic discourse. It's the perpetual tendency of pagans to borrow from the Christian worldview when it's convenient to them for their own survival, flourishing, or pleasure, right? Right? Classic example of survival, you know we talk to someone who believes in evolution ardently the survival of the fittest, but they they, they give up their principles rather rapidly when you pull out your handgun and say okay i 'm more fit than you um, because that doesn't, <laughs> they can 't live with the implications of their own worldview, and so they, they give them up rather rapidly here also for for flourishing, you know many people settle down right they stop drinking, stop doing drugs they Settle down with a wife, raise children, get a job, work hard, prepare for the future. And they're not believers. They're unbelievers. And you can help them uh, to that end. Because uh, they, they, they recognize that biblical principles actually do promote flourishing. And also for pleasure along the way. Okay? They, they see that they, it would get even into the abstracts. So they recognize the the good and the beautiful and the true, and they and they and they gravitate to these things because that those things give pleasure. Okay, and so even unbelievers can do this, um, and they do do this regularly, borrowing from the Christian worldview. Actually, not living in consonance with their own principles, borrowing from the Christian worldview, and that can be a great segue for apologetic discourse. Okay you 're borrowing from the Christian worldview and all the things that matter you ought to embrace the totality of it and live consistently with it and it can be a, it can be a, a, a way to uh, introduce then the whole Christian worldview as part of a Christian gospel okay so so even 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 when people are doing the right thing for the wrong reason that can be an a great entree for the gospel. Move then to the continuing effects of depravity on the regenerate. Thomas Boston, I mentioned him just a little bit ago here, in his magisterial book on anthropology, Human Nature in its Fourfold State, dedicates a fourth of the material to understanding sin in the converted man. And this is true because theological misunderstandings about depravity don't end with regeneration. The concern here generally is the overstatement of the effects of depravity in the the regenerate. Specifically, I want to go after the persistent scourge of Keswick theology and other forms of easy believism that focus too singularly on justification to the exclusion of regeneration. More on that in a bit that have led some counselors to false understandings that believers remain unchanged and still fully possessed of total inability even after they convert. This is an error that has long plagued corners of Protestantism, really starting with Luther and, uh, and, and you know all the way up to Tullian to Vigian, right? And, and a lot in between. Let's talk about this. So the effects of depravity first on faith. Regeneration cancels total inability. Period. Okay. Regeneration cancels total inability. Whatever the remnants of sin that persist in the believer's life do not amount to an inability to exercise faith or please God. God has rendered us capable of believing, submitting to, welcoming the things of the Spirit of God, and pleasing Him. In fact, it's the blessed state of the redeemed that they are not only able to please God, but are granted a new sort of inability. They cannot persist unchecked in their sins or fail to bear fruit, because their nature has changed. They cannot help but grow in grace any more than a baby can help but growing. So, to, so a new kind of inability has set in. Not only can a bad tree not bear good fruit, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. First John says it this way. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's, sin remains in, God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he is born of God. So, so we, we find here that there is a kind of inability that believers have. They, they, they cannot continue in sin, unchecked. Now these verses do not imply perfection, but there is a world of gap between inability and perfection that we live in. I think sometimes we, we lose sight of the fact that all of us live between. OK These verses imply most emphatically that the believer has undergone a fundamental transformation. The old is gone, displaced by a new creation. The believer has shrugged off the old self and has donned the new self. And this new self, described by Paul as the spirit man, who is in possession of the mind of Christ, and by Peter as this startling phrase here, a partaker of the divine nature. He is energized by the permanent resident influence of God himself who intersects with his mind in a necessary and enduring way supplying spiritual strength for Christian godliness. He is a believer, not just someone who believes. He is a saint, not only someone who does holy things. It's important here to note that this spiritual strength that God supplies is not, as some suppose, an alien work or an iterative work that works externally to the believer or independently of him. This is a sharp dichotomy that's sometimes taught and it's routinely expressed in the idea, I hear it all the time, that a believer does not do good works in his own strength but rather in the strength that God supplies. Okay? It's incorrect. Spiritual strength cannot be so bifurcated Instead, the believer so cooperates with God that divine enablement becomes the believer's own strength to accomplish God's will. It's not as though, I'm here, I can't do anything, so God comes, swoops in, and does it for me. That's the essence of Keswick theology, right? I'm just going to be a channel. I can't do anything right, so the best thing I can do is just get out of the way. You know, let go, let God, okay? So that's, that's Keswick theology, this idea that the strength that God supplies is alien and iterative. It comes from without, and it comes occasionally, okay? usually in connection with fillings of the Spirit, for instance. Okay? But that's not, that's, not, that's not quite right. We receive from God an enduring stream of strength by virtue of our regeneration and indwelling. That's where our strength comes from, and it's sustained... Further, with the ordinary means of grace, I had detailed them in a footnote there, by prayer, by mutual encouragement, by exhortation, the armor of God, all of these things serve to strengthen us in the inner man. And, as a result then, we contribute to our own effort to our spiritual growth. and we won't look up every one of these passages, but each one of them has a verb of effort attached to the Christian sanctification. We strive, we labor, we strain, we work, we crucify, mortify, abstain, deny, discipline. In fact, Hebrews 12.4 startles us here when the author here criticizes his readers for not resisting to the point of shedding blood. (laughs) That's what... is supposed to to look like. That's what sanctification is supposed to look like. So this concerted effort of God working in me and through me and I operating on the strength that God supplies, which I incorporate into my new being, I contribute here to my own sanctification. So this concerted effort is the formula for extirpating the lingering remnants of sin and progressing in holiness. Two summary verses. We labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within us. So we labor, we strive, because his power is at work. Enables us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, because God is at work. Enabling us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, So that's what sanctification looks like. It's not getting getting out of the way and letting God do it for me. It's me participating with God in order to advance in holiness. So I say here, this approach contrasts, and I've already said this, with the Keswick understanding and other quasi-antinomian models, which teach that the new nature merely counteracts the effects of an old man that is just as strong as he ever was. And only, this only happens when the believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. Something alien and interiterative. I say, this errant anthropology of the converted state, in which totally, the totally depraved old man survives regeneration, sometimes results in counsel for the believer to stop striving. It's in some of our songs, right? Let go and let God merely remind ourselves regularly of our justification. Uh, you know, sometimes this this phrase "preach the gospel to yourselves" now in it in itself is not necessarily a problematic line here. But oftentimes, what people mean by it is remind yourself perpetually of your justification. Where it seems to me the the exhortation in Scripture is to remind yourself that you are regenerate, that you are a new man. So get up and do what's right. Okay, it's not just remember that 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 you know Tullian Tavidian. I know he's sort of fallen. Uh, from, 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 from grace in some sense. Um, but he had this book, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, okay? which is true of justification. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But he said, but the, the, the theme of this book is that's true of sanctification. Jesus, I don't do anything. If I do, that's legalism. Jesus does everything. So I simply get out of the way. To, and and, 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 and this, is, this is oftentimes the impetus for, for all these concerns, of, I think, incorrect concerns about legalism at times. Okay? We are supposed to follow the laws, we're supposed to follow the rules. There's lots of them. And we're supposed to use a lot of effort to do so. That's not legalism, right? That's obedience. Okay? That's obedience. And it's something that God exhorts us to do. And it's not something that he does for us, it's something that in which we participate. And so oftentimes you see this passive advice for overcoming sin. The believer, it is argued, can do nothing better than to get out of the way of God's monergistic work of sanctification. But this stands in stark contrast to the weight of biblical instruction that calls upon believers to diligently strive, labor, strain, work, crucify, mortify, abstain, deny, discipline. So the biblical insistence that believers participate rigorously, to the point of shedding blood, in their own sanctification is surprising to some. Seems to contradict the Bible's insistence that salvation is not by works but by faith alone, but that statement is actually imprecise. The Bible insists more precisely that justification is not by works but by faith alone, resting wholly on the imputed and perfect righteousness of our Lord Christ, to which nothing may be added at any time. This great importance that we should rightly place on sola fide and solus Christus does not give us liberty to expand its scope to include sanctification. This is a grave error. Sanctification, as we have noted above, occurs by synergy, requiring contributions both from God and from the believer. We both participate in our own sanctification. So, the effects of depravity on faith, we say... Are, uh, the effects of depravity or the effects of regeneration in combating depravity is complete when it comes to, the t- in terms of total inability, in terms of faith and obedience. But the effects of depravity on the image of God are largely unchanged. We've noted above that the effects of depravity on the image of God are external and incidental to the image proper and can be affected uh, significantly by common grace. That is, depravity does not prevent people from thinking, choosing, acting, etc., but rather inhibits their success in thinking God's thoughts after him, choosing righteousness from a pure heart, or acting in God's revealed interests. Regeneration alters this situation by supplying a new dominant impulse for the believer, but that alteration is never complete in this life because the remnants of sin are never wholly scoured from the soul of man until he reaches the next. Still, progress can be made. And progress, in many ways, not entirely divorced in form from the moral progress of the unregenerate. The biblical counselor has at his disposal means that lie both in the sphere of special grace and common grace. The biblical counselor knows that sin habits in believers' lives are primarily spiritual in nature and can become overcome comprehensively only by bringing to bear biblical truth on regenerate minds rendered submissive to it by the miracle of divine grace. This does not mean, however, that common grace solutions to sin and its effects are without merit or that they necessarily draw from the well of legalism. You know, If somebody comes to you has trouble with alcoholism, you can tell them, well, why don't you get alcohol out of the house? That's not legalism. That's common sense, or if I may, common grace. Okay? Even an unbeliever can pick up on that. It's, it's that basic form of grace. Whole organizations exist to assist people to this end also possible for the medical community to assist in supplying medications that effectively manage the results of sin, whether that's aspirin to ease chemically the effects of a hangover, insulin to curb the lifelong effects of gluttony, even psychological drugs that mute the effects of disorders of the mind. By saying this, I am not offering a blanket endorsement of all medical treatment of sin problems. I don't have the medical expertise to do that still. In principle, it is not an assault on biblical counseling or a rejection of biblical sufficiency to supplement spiritual solutions with physical, chemical, or programmatic aids to the extirpation of sin and the treatment of its effects. So, finally, implications here for counseling the regenerate. Biblical counseling, in its truest definition, applies uniquely to believers. It supplies holistic solutions to sin problems. Only the regenerate can submit gladly to and with logical consistency to the whole Christian worldview and to its comprehensive ethical standards. Still, the remnants of sin are such that progress in holiness, while inevitable, is far from automatic. Note the following three principles here. One, we shouldn't Expect that progress of believers in overcoming sin will be an easy prospect just because God supplies us with strength to that end. There's no shorter way to holiness that bypasses the hard work of sanctification. Pastor Doran referenced that line here yesterday in his uh, presentation uh, early on. Uh, that, that phrase derives here from Phoebe Palmer uh, Phoebe Palmer, uh, an early figure in Keswick theology, she was, she was a Wesleyan, grew up Wesleyan, um, and in Wesleyanism, it's a lot of striving and striving and failing, striving and failing and striving and failing. Now, Wesley did anticipate a day where you could get entire sanctification, even possibly in this life, but he admitted he only knew of one person that he was confident had gotten there. So, so it usually happens at the end of life after a, a, after a long season of striving and failing. And Phoebe Palmer, raised in this, being raised in this tradition, said, there's got to be a shorter way. <laughs> there's got to be a shortcut. And so, untrained, she's reading in her scriptures. She finds that the altar sanctifies the gift. And she says, okay, so the altar immediately and magically sanctifies any gift that you give. So what do I need to do? I need to lay myself on the altar. Okay, this is the birth of altar theology. Okay. Now, of course, she, she recognizes there is no altar in the Christian church, and so, so what do you do? I, I used to think it was the communion table because everybody went forward. Uh, but but it, was, it, was, it, was, it was because the altar was the community of God's, uh, the God's community, the, the, the community of God's elect. And so you would go to the front of the church and announce your consecration to God. And in so doing, you lay your all on the altar. And at that moment of consecration you could be elevated into an immediately perfected state. Okay. Now, of course, unlike Wesleyan theology, you could lose that perfected state, and you'd have to get it back routinely by what? Acts of filling. Okay, so every, every six months, you'd have the spring revival and the fall revival in order to bring you back up to this perfected state. And so this, this, it all comes from this idea that there's got to be a shorter way to sanctification, okay? But there isn't one. <laughs> that that was bad exegesis that she engaged in, okay? Um, there is no shorter way to holiness that bypasses the hard work of sanctification. Just as physical strength increases with diet and regular exercise, so we should also expect that strength that God supplies to the inner man may be cultivated by diet and exercise, that is, the ordinary means of grace, the disciplines of a godly life. Sanctification by merely reckoning on the fact of our justification or by letting go and letting God or by anticipating iterative alien fillings of the Holy Spirit will not get the job done. Cultivating godliness involves great personal resolve, effort, and time. So we should anticipate that in the counseling task. We should expect, however, that progress can be made. All genuine believers have the capacity to progress in sanctification, and not only this, it is necessary and inevitable that this progress occur. Without it, no one shall see the Lord. We have in the resident new nature everything necessary for life and godliness and are able, for this reason, to make every effort to add to our faith goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Thirdly, we must also recognize, too, that common grace measures, being part of God's singular truth system, can play a legitimate role in the believer's cultivation of proper habits and disciplines and even mastery over sin. Programmatic efforts to establish good behavioral patterns and even medical aids to curbing habits, addictions, and the lingering effects of sin, while not all of a kind, are not in principle or intrinsically a capitulation to legalism or an affirmation of biblical insufficiency. We could say more about biblical sufficiency, but I want to give at least a couple of minutes for questions. Conclusion. The modern biblical counseling movement much as the modern expression of presuppositional apologetics owes its genesis in no small part to the recognition of and implementation of distinctively reformational principles of hammer theology, doctrine of sin. Continuing study of this neglected head of theology with a view to its implications for discipleship and counseling must continue if the hard-fought gains of biblical counseling are to prevail."